0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so we'll begin uh, this session also with a short meditation, about 15 minutes or so. Um, <clears throat> so find a comfortable uh, sitting posture, however you uh, are practicing you know, in the meditation. And again, softening the eyes and the jaw and the shoulders and kind of relaxing into the body. be using that phrase, there is a body, just to remind oneself to settle into the awareness (coughs) of, (coughs) excuse me, the whole body posture. Just sit (coughs) and know you're sitting. And within that framework, there is a body. Be aware of what arises predominantly in the field of awareness. Might be sounds coming and going. Might be the sensations of the body breathing. settled back in a very receptive mode. Some people find it helpful to make a soft mental note, or label, starting with there is a body, or it could be hearing, it could be in or in and out, or rise and fall, and feeling the breath. Or you can experiment to see if the noting is of help to you or not. Occasionally reminding yourself with the phrase, there is a body. within that larger frame, becoming aware of the sensations of the body breathing. You may become aware of other bodily sensations, tightness or pressure or vibration, <coughs> warmth or coolness, heaviness, lightness. Simply become mindful of any bodily sensation that calls your attention. Open to it, feeling it. Again, resting in the larger frame, there is a body. Stay alert for the appearance of thoughts or images in the mind. And here, a note might be particularly helpful just thinking or seeing if it's an image. In noting the thought or being mindful of it, we stay disentangled from it see it just as another arising object in the open space of awareness By keeping the larger frame of there is a body, sometimes easier within that frame to allow the breath to follow its own natural rhythm without any interference, pushing or pulling. The body knows how to breathe. We can just be settled back in the awareness of the whole body and simply be aware of the sensations of the body breathing all by itself And be mindful of any of the five hindrances that Bart talked about this morning. If any of them should arise and become predominant, be mindful and the noting here would be very helpful. Just wanting a desire or aversion, anger, sleepiness or dullness, restlessness, or doubt. Just keep an eye out. the arising of those mind states noting them being with them seeing how they too come and go And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes, become aware of the phenomenon of seeing, Maybe even make a mental note just to reinforce that awareness, that mindfulness, (laughs) which then we can carry out into the busyness of our days, periodically remembering to be mindful of seeing. So thank you for sending in the many questions that you did. Um, probably won't be able to get to all of them because there were quite a few, but uh, we'll go through as many as we can. But before that, uh, I have to make a little correction to something I said yesterday about when I was talking about how the Buddha or practitioners would sometimes uh, you know, see different mind states arise and say, Mara, I see you. So I need to clarify that a little bit. But in order to do that, i uh, have to take a little foray into Buddhist cosmology. <laughs> so uh, some of you may relate to this, others not. But it provides a context for, for the clarification. So Mara uh, is used in two different ways, that, that name. <laughs> Uh, One way we use it, and especially in contemporary, you know, uh, Buddhist practice, uh, one way that it's used very often is Mara as the embodiment of ignorance and delusion. And so when we see a defilement in the mind, we might say, oh, Mara, I see you. And I do that a lot when I notice conceit arising in the mind, ah, Mara, I see you. And I'm always delighted, actually, because I'd much rather see it than not see it, so there's actually a, a kind of joy or delight in that moment of mindfulness. But the other meaning of Mara, and this is where it gets a little cosmological, uh, Mara, classically in the Buddhist texts, is actually a being of from the highest of the sensual heavens, right? And his main purpose in being is to keep people ensnared in the realm of sense pleasures. So it's quite different than the Western notion of the devil. You know, here's here's this being who just wants to keep us enjoying ourselves, you know, in the realm of sense pleasures. And so he's always trying to dissuade practitioners from staying on the path. But he's really seen as as one of these celestial beings that comes down and and bothers people. (laughs) And so then, you know, the Buddha or practitioner would say, Oh, Mara, I see you. And the reason I wanted to make this clarification is, I believe yesterday I said, when the Buddha or practitioners see defilements arise in their minds, they'll say, Mara, I see you. But of course, for the Buddha and fully enlightened beings, Arhan's, The defilements have all been uprooted. So defilements do not arise in their minds. And so when the Buddha or one of the great Arhans would use that phrase, it was referring to this being, not not to their own state of mind. Uh, So I just wanted to clarify that so we don't have the impression that the defilements are still arising in the mind of a fully awakened being. so now I feel like I cleared up that little karmic, <laughs> that little karmic knot. Uh, okay. So here we'll uh, go just to the questions that you sent in. Uh, would it be beneficial to review one's practice at the end of a sitting, and also look back at how one has traveled throughout the day at the end of the day? If so, what would be the value, and how can this be done? Uh, I think it's a good idea, you know, that kind of just self-reflection, not in, not in a heavy way and not, certainly not in a judgmental way, but just, you know, after a sitting maybe just to reflect. well, what just happened? You know, was my mind pretty concentrated and mindful or was it getting lost a lot? And if it was getting lost a lot, maybe reflect on what it was getting lost in. So it just brings all of this to greater consciousness. And at the end of the day, it might be good just to reflect on, you know, how was your day spent? (laughs) Were you frittering away time as I was doing on my retreat occasionally? (laughs) Or, you know, were you pretty focused in your day? And you reflect a little bit. Was anything unskillful done? You know, when you look back, oh, you know, maybe, you know, responded with anger to someone or a particularly a particularly noticeable manifestation of greed. Uh, so again, all without judgment. It's all just to bring all of these tendencies uh, into the light, you know, and to also reflect on the wholesome things, and, which is uh, a very helpful thing to do because it really uh, raises the, the good energy in our system. You know, so if you were particularly generous or, you know, loving in some way or of service, uh, whatever, it's just this reflection on the day and kind of assessing, Oh, this maybe I could practice letting this one go or, Oh, this was good. Maybe I should cultivate it a little more. Um, so I think it can be a useful thing, useful thing to do. Okay. The next one, uh, My father is terminally ill in cancer and has a few months to live. Uh, How can I support him in this last period of life? He's not a Buddhist practitioner, but he's open and interested. Um, How can I support myself in this very difficult period? Are there any specific teachings that are essential? How do you talk to a person who is dying? Okay. So this is a, this is a really meaningful question because, you know, at different times in our own lives, we may be with people who are dying, and it's also a reminder of our own mortality. <laughs> you know, we're all in the queue, uh, and so it's good to, in a way, get comfortable, you know, with that process, whether it's being with someone else or in our own process of dying when that happens. Um, so, particularly that that last question struck me: How do you talk to a person who is dying? I think uh, I would I would reframe it a bit and <clears throat> less about how do I talk to the person, but emphasize the listening. You know, so as we're with somebody who's either very sick or dying, rather than kind of jumping in and trying to, you know, be over helpful, <laughs> you know, can we just, you know, enter into that? space uh, very softly and receptively and listening to where the person's at because people in that process uh, will be in very different places you know and they'll be open or closed in very different ways so before kind of jumping in with our own agenda i think it's really helpful just to be there you know to be there in a loving way and listening, and really inviting, you know, the the communication to come in this case from your father or whoever it may be, and so then you get a feel of oh well, what's appropriate, and what's not. Um, so generally, listening, you know, and, and practicing listening skillfully, I think, would be a very a very skillful thing to do. Generally, you know, when If and when it's appropriate in that space, uh, the teachings suggest uh, in some way or other reminding people of the good things that they've done in their lives. You know, because as things come to mind in the dying process, of course, there may be a whole life review. And as we know from our own minds, there can often be a tendency to focus on the negative, right? So in that very, uh, you know, tender space, uh, and again, it's not, it's not like making this a big project or trying to force it, but in that listening space, if the opportunity presents itself to keep this in mind, you know, just you know, recalling to mind, have, have people, you know, this person just recall, you know, the, the beautiful things they've done in their life, uh can be really helpful. And uh, there are people who have really devoted their lives and their careers to working with death and dying. And so one of the, one of the teachers, Rodney Smith, um, used to be the director of the Seattle Hospice for many years, 13, 15 years. And he wrote a very beautiful book, Lessons from the Dying, by Rodney Smith. I would suggest that it's it's really a lovely book, and he just recounts a lot of his experiences, you know, of being with people dying and kind of the mistakes that are made and what's helpful and skillful. So that might be a good resource for you. Okay. So mm. So the next question is, since desire creates suffering, could you please talk about how to deal with ambition in the practice? Ambitions of developing metta, of setting oneself free, of being enlightened. Uh, You know, and so the desire for enlightenment, you know, so how do we reconcile, you know, if craving or desire is the cause of suffering Where does desire for wholesome things come in? The problem here uh, is not a real problem because it's more linguistic. In English, the word desire has many meanings. You know, we use it in a lot of different ways. So one way we use the word desire in English involves clinging and greed and grasping, you know, and that's that's the desire and craving I was talking about yesterday, you know, where there's that thirst for something uh, in, in an unwholesome way, you know, where there's just a lot of clinging and grasping. But another meaning of desire, uh, and this is a different mental quality, you know, in the Buddhist understanding, it, it, has, it's, it has its own specific name. In, in Pali, it's Chanda, and it's just called desire to do. And that's the quality of the factor in the mind, which it's, it's the motivation. You know, it's, it's that energy to do something which in and of itself is ethically neutral. You know, because this energy to do could be associated with the wholesome. It could be associated with the unwholesome, but that's the, that's the uh, compelling energy to act. So, and so we could say, oh, yes, there's a desire for enlightenment or a desire to become more compassionate. So this is not the desire of craving or clinging. It's more the desire of aspiration. And simply changing the words we use in English, I think, will help settle the mind into the realization, oh, yeah, these are two really different states even though we may use the same word desire, but one is the desire of clinging and that grasping. And one is this desire to just an aspiration, which sets the direction for us, you know, and it's, yes, uh, going in the direction of awakening or the direction of more, uh, compassion or more loving kindness. But I think hopefully you can get the sense, even from the use of that word aspiration, You get the sense of being settled back in the heart and it just leads us onward rather than the desire of craving, which is, it's like we're leaning forward, holding on and grasping. Um, So it's just to, to understand the difference that even though at times we'll use the same word, the word is being used in very different ways and reflecting different mind states. Okay, so this was an interesting question and it was about equanimity um, and how we understand equanimity in a situation uh, like we're in now with the pandemic. Okay, so I have recently answered questions from friends about equanimity in the face of what is going on in the world, with saying things like equanimity can bring you closer to suffering and help with discernment. But after hearing the news stories, you know, of the thousands who have had to flee their homes and uh, um, being refugees, and just all the, the massive suffering you know that is involved worldwide with this pandemic somehow uh there was really doubt or question how can how can one be equanimous with that level you know of suffering so here it's important i think to uh really dive in a little bit to the understanding of this mind state of equanimity and why it's so powerful even in this kind of situation, you know, in a situation of tremendous suffering in the world. So it's a counterbalance to to opposing tendencies that could easily come up as we engage one way or another with the reality of the suffering in the world so the two opposing tendencies which are not skillful and which equanimity is the remedy for one is indifference you know in the face of this in the face of the suffering that's out there and you know because of the technology we're so aware of it you know it's it's easy it's easy uh to, this is just too much you know i, I can't <laughs> i can't deal with it all uh you know and maybe the thought of, there's not much i can do about it and so we just pull back you know and in a way we become some flavor of indifference so that's not such a skillful response on the other side of unskillful response you know, as we take in the news and the reality of all this suffering, for some people, it will just lead to overwhelming sorrow, you know, and where the mind gets overwhelmed by it because it is so big and it's not clear what to do about it uh, necessarily. And so we just, we're kind of drowning in the sorrow that may arise. Well, that's not that helpful either. So equanimity is that space that's neither indifferent nor drowning in the sorrow equanimity is that we could say that spaciousness of mind or it's like space mind like space which can hold everything it doesn't pull back you know out of aversion it doesn't drown in what's happening and from that space of equanimity, where the mind is not reactive, you know, leading to indifference or to overwhelm, we're in that place of balance. Then it's possible, and this, this phrase that I'm gonna use um, really can be a guide for us, you know, as we watch our interaction, you know, in this situation, can we, be, can we be responsive rather than reactive? So instead of kind of that initial reaction to kind of just to the magnitude of the suffering and then getting caught up in our own reactivity one way or another with equanimity, yeah, we take it in, you know, we're open to it, we feel it. And then from that place of balance, can we respond in whatever way is possible and whatever way is appropriate uh, in the moment. And sometimes there's not much we can do, you know, and we just want to develop a heart that's open to the suffering and feeling the compassion for it. And sometimes there are things we can do, you know, through acts of generosity, through acts of kindness. Uh, So equanimity gives us that inner balance and the inner space to actually hold it. As I say, we're not pulling away from it and we're not drowning in it. We're holding it in this open space of mind. And then allowing for this compassionate responsiveness to be there. And we just see, uh, you know, how that can manifest. So I think this is a really important um, area to explore for yourselves. Because um, equanimity. You know, qualities like love and compassion, and peace, and these words really kind of stir people. <laughs> equanimity, we don't hear much about equanimity. <laughs> yeah, it's not in the news much. <laughs> and yet... It is this powerful balancing force in the mind. And that's why the Buddha included it in the four Brahma Viharas, the four boundless states, which I will be talking more about tomorrow. Um, So I would really encourage, you know, to explore uh, in yourselves, you know, what this quality of equanimity is like, this quality of balance, its openness, its non-reactivity, this connectedness, And there's the possibility for responsiveness that comes from it. Okay. This was a question about walking practice. Most of the times I feel kind of anxious doing the walking practice. I feel an unpleasant squeeze on my chest and the breath is not full. Usually I do walking with noticing, naming the different phases of each step. Today, inspired in Bart's uh, student that imagined salsa dancing, I just let go of the naming and the differentiation of each step and let the body walk in a smoother way, almost like a dance. I noticed the squeeze less strong and I noticed a pleasant feeling." But then the question goes on, but wondering, well, is this just aversion to what I was feeling or is this a skillful thing to do? So first, uh, I want to put in a plug for the walking meditation because often people think of the walking as kind of second tier meditation, you know, the real meditation is sitting and your walking is what you do, you know, in recess, in the in-between times. This, this is not a wise way of looking at it. And over the years I've found as much insight comes in the walking as in the sitting. It's a very important part of the practice. And it's that practice, which in some way carries over the most into our lives. Because the more you do walking meditation, after a while, being mindful of the body moving becomes the default. You know, that's the default setting of the mind, just out of habit. If we've done a lot of walking meditation, then just in your life, you're walking down the street or in your apartment or house from room to room, just automatically the mind will drop into being mindful. So it's a powerful way of integrating mindfulness into one's life, as well as uh, really opening up profound understandings. <laughs> All of this is just a plug to... Keep doing the walking meditation. However, we want to do it skillfully, you know. And from the tone of the question, I had the sense that at first maybe there was a little too much over-efforting or trying to be too precise you know, in the naming and the feeling of each, the different parts of each step. That could be done in a very relaxed way, but it could also be done with a little too much efforting which might have caused those unpleasant uh, physical sensations involved so first to say it is fine just imagine yourself salsa dancing for a while yeah just just as a way to uh, maybe counteract if there is a tendency to over effort you know or to get a little tight or even watching one's posture, you know, do you feel like you're kind of bent over and looking at the walking, the movement? And th- this is actually quite common. Uh, but really, the being mindful of the movement has nothing to do with seeing. And in fact, I would recommend, particularly, not looking at the foot or leg, you know, really looking, just keeping the gaze a little way ahead, and. <clears throat> There's one, excuse me, reframe of our understanding of how we're doing the practice and of what mindfulness means, particularly in walking and in movement. A lot of the meditative language that we use around mindfulness involves words like watching or feeling or noticing, you know, so it's all suggestive of looking at something. And at different times that might be helpful, but it's really not helpful in the walking at all. And uh, I discovered something quite early on in my practice, which made a huge difference it made the walking go from being effortful to delightful. And that is just changing the language, you know, that I was framing it with. Instead of using just or having the notion watching, even if one is not actually looking at the foot or leg, there could still be that sense of kind of being up in the head somehow. And the attention is being directed from there you know as if we were watching the movement so to change the language from watching to feeling feel the movement feel the touch because when we're feeling it that's from the inside that's not being up here in the head looking at anything that's we in the body and simply feeling it move so just as a little experiment, right now, if you like, just move your arm back and forth. And so watching it, I'm gonna exaggerate a bit, but watching it would be like this, <laughs> you know, like like we're really intent on not losing it, you know, on tracking it. And now just move your arm back and simply feel it. It could be like a dance. You know, you can move in any way and you're simply feeling the movement. It becomes effortless. Uh, So I would just suggest that you certainly continue with the walking practice because it's so valuable, but see if you can uh, make this shift from watching to feeling. And I think you'll find the whole system relax in that. Okay, I have attention deficit disorder and a very hard time maintaining focus during talks or meditation. How can I accept this with equanimity and still meditate? It's hard not to blame myself and so strengthen wrong view and conceit. Okay, so there are a few things that come to mind. Um, One is... Practicing a kind of open awareness rather than trying to have a directed awareness, you know, trying to stay on a single object. But see what happens if you just settle back in an open awareness, trying to be mindful of whatever it is that's arising, even if the mind is jumping around a lot, you know, so just moment after moment, you know, what are you aware of? And it might be a sound, it might be a thought, it might be a sensation, it might be a breath. So the mind does not have to stay, particularly in Vipassana, on a single object. You know, you could relax back and just be mindful of what is arising in your mind-body process, however it is. You know, in moment after moment, it just ignore oh, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, this. And it may be lots of thoughts or might the mind might seem to just jump from you know, sound to thought to sensation, all of that's fine. If you're simply settled back and acknowledging in each moment, this, this, this. Uh, so that's one thing I would try and see, if that actually helps you relax into the experience of what is actually going on. From another angle, If you wanted to see if there's a way of actually strengthening the ability to stay concentrated, you know, in a more sustained way on a particular object, Um, one way that you might try, and I found this very helpful in general, but it may be uh, helpful very specifically to what you're asking, and that is, for example, in the walking meditation, Sometimes people have the idea, suppose they have a pathway ten, ten steps in length, you know so often people have the idea or the intention oh i'm going to be mindful for this for these ten steps, this this path of walking uh, that's way too much, way too much, even to, to have the intention i 'm going to be mindful for five steps. How about <clears throat> You know, as, as we're doing the walking meditation, you just have the intention okay can I feel again feeling rather than watching can I feel one step? That's all one step and then you stop you know just one step Whew. did it. okay one more step oh okay, great I could do that. Stop. Don't try to link them up. Just one step, one step, one step. So doing it one step at a time, that may well be within the capacity, even with attention deficit disorder. You might see that, oh, yeah, well, I can I can stay attentive for the duration of one step. Well, that's all you need to do. Because we're ever only taking one step at a time. So, but we get ahead of ourselves in our minds, yeah. You know, and we have these expectations of something, not only for you, but for most people, beyond their capacity, yeah. You know? and so then we get frustrated or self-judgmental or whatever. One step, and you could do the same thing in the sitting, one breath. Not even one breath, one in-breath. That's all. And one, well, don't hold the in-breath too long. You have to (laughs) out-breath. One in-breath, one out-breath. But I I think you get the picture. So you might try that, and that might also help. So this combination of open awareness, you know, just noticing whatever it is, even if they're quickly changing objects, or one step, one breath. Okay, so this is uh, another question that opens up really a whole big discussion. And this question was prefaced. The, the, the words which open this question, I think, are the most commonly used words in questions that arise in meditation retreats. If there is no self, then? <laughs> because this is this is a big question for people. You know, this idea of no self, unlike impermanence, you know, or even, you know, suffering or you know, discontent, those we can easily relate to. But no self, non-self, you know, what does that mean? So, if it's not totally clear to you that's fine you know this this is this is a counterintuitive teaching with profound implications for our freedom but just you know you hear the teachings about it reflect on it let it sit let it germinate you know more questions all of that's fine because that's how slowly gradually we come to understand it okay <laughs> so if there is no self and my body doesn't belong to me then am i just a collection of atoms in the form of a body belonging to no one how do we reconcile living in a world that fixates so heavily on the sense of self and i you and we and they with the knowledge that none of it is real okay (laughs) so basically if there's no self what does that mean for how just how we live in the world which seems to revolve around you know being a self Um, so there's one framework in the teachings that is very helpful here and it also relates to a, a deeper understanding of right and wrong view which i'll get to in another question but the frame that can be really helpful which is found in uh, the teachings is the frame of two levels of truth, relative truth and more ultimate truth, or we could say conventional reality and more ultimate reality. Just as an example, you know, of what that means kind of in real life, uh, just imagine, you know, holding a glass or something, glass or a cup and, You know, the cup is real. We're holding it. We use it. We drink from it. So it's definitely real. You know, it's not not a figment of our imagination. But on another level, if we looked at glass through, you know, a high-power microscope, glass would disappear. A cup would disappear. And then we would be on that level of just atoms and, you know, molecules and all of that. So on that level, there is no cup, there is no glass. So the question in our lives is how do we integrate this understanding of the more ultimate level and also the relative level? And this is important to do. It reminded me when I was practicing in India, I was practicing in Bodh Gaya, you know, in this place of the Buddha's awakening. And I was staying at the Burmese, um, kind of a Burmese, Bihar Burmese uh, rest house, um, where a lot of the practi- Western practitioners were staying. And in Bodh Gaya, uh, one of the big landowners had a working elephant. You know, that was really working. Uh, <clears throat> so sometimes, you know, when we'd be walking into the village, the elephant would be coming the other way. Well... I didn't stay in the level of ultimate truth <laughs> of oh this, that's just, yeah, you know that's just atoms and molecules <laughs> the elephant is mostly empty space no I moved out of the way <laughs> the elephant's a lot bigger than I was you know so we need to engage in the relative level you know and the conventional level uh, and on that level even using terms like I and you and we and they Using that as a conventional designation, totally fine. However, to the degree through our practice, we have experiences of the more ultimate level, you know, where we really do see the body as being nothing solid. You know, we may not be seeing it as atoms, but we can certainly feel it as just an energy flow of you know, we could say minute particles or where there is no solidity at all and the form of the body has completely disappeared. So we're getting a a taste of what that more ultimate level of selflessness means. On that level, there is no self, there is no solid body, there is no solid being. Even though on the conventional level, the relative level, we we use those concepts. But this is the important point. The more grounded we are, the more experience we have of the ultimate level, that is the momentariness of all phenomena, that really this mind body process and the whole world, <clears throat> it's just a flow of momentary arisings and passings. But usually we're not seeing it on that level, perception. You know, we're seeing it on the level of yeah this is a glass this is a cup but the more experience we have and mostly it's through our meditation you know of this more ultimate level then we operate on the relative level with much less attachment and clinging because we know deeply and we know from our own experience that everything we're relating to on a conventional level on this more ultimate level looks very different, you know, and it's not as solid as we think. Uh, <clears throat> so the implication of our insight into impermanence and into emptiness of self that happens on the deeper level then gets translated into the way we're relating in this conventional world but we're relating from a much freer place we don't get seduced quite so much you know with attachment and craving and clinging uh, and conceit and uh, so this is how they work together they're not they're not in conflict they're just two different levels of perception just one one last point on this so just to think whether, whether we're thinking of it in terms of our own mind body or just the example of the glass and the cup. It's important to understand that this relative and more ultimate level of truth uh, is a union. It's not that the relative level is here and the ultimate level is here. It's just the cup. Well, it's just this mind-body. It depends, it depends what level of perception, of refinement of perception we bring to it. So from one level, it looks like a cup. On another level, no cup. It's just atoms and electrons. Uh, so we want to understand that it's, in a way, it's, there's one reality. It's not, it's not two different realities. But they're seen from different levels. You know? And that's, that's what makes freedom in the relative world possible. You know? Because we understand this very same experience that we're having on one level can be seen from another whole perspective. And a perspective that frees us, you know, as we navigate uh, the relative world. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, so this is um, a question that probably we all face at different times. I live in a community and neighborhood where there's a lot of fighting, greed, and delusion. This stimulates much aversion, fear, and grief within me. I want to push it away, get away from it. Unfortunately, I don't have the finances to move but to live in a different place. I have to. Learn to relate to what is around me in a skillful way. What can you suggest? Okay, so even though the situation you described may be, you know, a little bit on the extreme edge of challenging circumstances, uh, I think all of us find ourselves at different times in our lives in environments that are not conducive, you know, to to well-being so the first thing that's really important is to really practice being mindful of your own reactions in the mind basically the hindrances that Bart talked about this morning you know so you say it stimulates much aversion and fear and grief within me okay so those mind states are your responsibility because how you're relating to them, this is an important point, how you're relating to them is not dependent on what anybody else is doing or not doing, right? The external conditions may be the, the cause for these states to arise, but they have no power at all to determine, well, how am I relating to the grief or the anger or the aversion? So that's completely 100% your responsibility. And in understanding that, it's very empowering. So then we don't feel victimized, you know, by circumstances. Oh, they're making me feel a certain way. It's true that maybe the cause for these feelings to arise, but are we identified with these states or not? Are we condemning these states or not? And this is really important because we often don't see how the way we relate to unwholesome mind states can often be feeding them. So how do we, how do we feed these unwholesome mind states? We feed them in two ways. We feed them either by being totally lost and identified with them. And that's a lot of what I talked about yesterday. I'm so angry, or I'm so afraid, or I'm so grieving, or whatever it is, and that identification with them really empowers those states within us and it makes it stronger. But another way we feed these unwholesome mind states is through aversion towards them. I hate this. I want this to go away, right? And that aversion towards them, actually strengthens them. So this is not always immediately obvious. I would suggest you really look at it. Um, Then it's coming back in, in understanding all of this, then coming back to your practice where you're including the grief, you know, the fear, the aversion, they are mind states that are arising, you know, in the mind, they become objects of your meditation. You want to be mindful of them. So you're not getting lost and carried away by them and you're not condemning them. It's like, it's equanimity, <laughs> you know, developing that quality of space. Oh, you know, this is aversion. Aversion feels like this. Fear feels like this. Grief feels like this, you know? so. Of bringing that mindfulness and investigation to these very mind states. This is really important because it will unhook you from an unnecessary level of suffering. Right? You can't necessarily control what's happening in the environment, but you can influence how you are relating to what's arising in your own mind and relating in either in a way that just creates more suffering for yourself or in a way that actually brings about some insight, you know, into the mind, into these states themselves. And in not being caught by them, you will notice that they pass through much more quickly. So then they still arise. It's not, this is not like a magic thing. They're never going to arise again but you have learned to deal with them much more skillfully. And so you don't get stuck in them. So then they just be, it's like passing clouds, you you know, difficult stormy clouds passing through, not so much of a problem. Okay, so this is the foundation for, you know, beginning your work in this situation. Then, you know, once you feel that you've come to some place of non-reactivity or some place of greater peace then it's a very interesting question okay well how do how is there a way of relating to the people in the environment who are doing you know these really unskillful things or harmful things as a way of perhaps short circuiting that move to aversion and grief and fear you know that it had been conditioning in your mind once you have established some place of you know inner balance or uh, some little bit of equanimity it might be interesting as you are seeing people behave in unskillful ways instead of focusing on the personality or even the behavior you know which calls up all these all these emotions it would be interesting if you can and you know you can play with this and just try it out to really focus on the suffering that is there causing those harmful actions People who are happy, generally don't go around hurting other people, <laughs> you know. It's that kind of behavior, that kind of unskillful behavior usually is coming out of a place of suffering. And if we can tune into that, so- sometimes it's very visible. You know, if, if we stop and really look at a person as they're doing something, you know, not, not skillful, very often we can see, we can see the suffering underneath it. Uh, Or just be aware of it in a more general way. But by focusing on the suffering, then it's possible to actually uh, have their behavior be the cause of compassion to arise in you, rather than the fear or aversion, you know, or grief. Because you see the suffering in them and the suffering that they may be causing, you, know, you see the suffering of the whole situation and coming close to suffering, being open to suffering is the cause for compassion to arise, you know, when we can take it in with equanimity, when we don't fight against them or we're not, you know, having aversion to it. It's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of suffering here, you know. And then, this is so interesting because it's a very complex situation, but it's so rich that, I mean, this this is a great practice opportunity. It would really be interesting to the degree that you can work with this, you know, and develop it to some extent. If you have any relationship with any of these people, you know, in your environment, just to see if people start responding to you differently. If you are coming from a place of compassion rather than either judgment or anger or aversion or fear, because people respond to our energy, you know, and is what we're putting out just adding to the problem? Or are we stepping outside of the problem and coming to it from a very different mindset. So I'll just tell you one little anecdote. Uh, This has to do with our teacher Deepama, who many of you may have heard of. She was this amazing woman in Calcutta, profound practice in both all the concentration practices and all the powers of mind that can be developed and stages of enlightenment. Uh, At one point she said, somebody asked her what was in her mind, and she said, "Peace, concentration, and love." <laughs> that's quite a mind, <laughs> you know. That, thats thats what was in her mind. So she lived in a very poor section of Calcutta. I mean, we would probably call it a tenement, you know, very, very poor. So and then, and it was kind of a, an apartment building around a courtyard. And so the apartment's all open to this courtyard in India. You know, the doors are always open. And Deepa Ma told us that when she first moved in there, everybody in the building, they were fighting, and it's a lot of aggression and screaming. And, you know, so it sounds a little bit like the environment you described. But her presence in the building, she said, over time, it took some time. But the fact that she was this one being, who only had love and concentration and peace in her heart and mind, that vibe started to permeate the whole apartment building. You know, and and she said that over time, first people started coming to her, you know, for advice and for teachings, but the whole environment of that apartment building changed because of how she was. So we may not be yet at the level of Deepa Ma, but, you know, we can practice in that direction, you know, and just see what kind of influence we can have in our being if we have come to some place of uh, repose, you know, of ease in the situation. So it's, it's challenging. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I would really take it on as, as a situation of interest you know, okay. How can I investigate this, both in terms of how I'm relating to my own mind, and then what I'm bringing to the mix, you know, of the environment. Okay, so there was um, a few questions. You know, quite a, a number of quite. This it was the same question that uh, a number of you asked. Uh, to see if I could just further differentiate conceit and wrong view. You know, it wasn't so clear what necessarily the difference was. I'm taking a moment just to... (laughs) Uh, I can get very excited talking about the Dharma, so (laughs) just settle back for a moment. Just as a preface to this discussion, just as with the example of the cup, you know, and how we can either see it as a cup or at a deeper level, it's just, you know, electrons and atoms and, and, you know, things like that. So with these different experiences, like conceit or wrong view, uh, there are many different levels that we could explore it on, and I was going for a middle level. So the, the most superficial level would be just just on the conceptual level, you know, kind of a definition. Kind of the the middle level that I was trying to engage in was okay to understand, you know, the concepts of them, but also how do we feel, how do we experience them in our practice. So that's what I was aiming for. There is a deeper level, which is gone into in tremendous detail in the Buddhist psychology, which is called the Abhidhamma, which is this super detailed analysis of all the different states and kinds of consciousness and all of the different mind states, mental factors, and how they combine and relate in different ways. So that that would be like going to the subatomic particle level. I didn't go to that level because I don't know about it. (laughs) I'm not an Abhidhamma scholar. And so, and for me, even though it's really interesting, we don't need that level of detail in order to understand how these three proliferating tendencies function. So I just wanted to say that because conceit and wrong view and craving, they never operate alone in our minds. You know, they're operating in conjunction with other mental factors. And so if you were interested, either through your own study or through, you know, going to a teacher who was really an expert in the Abhidhamma, you could explore, you know, the relationship of all of these different mental factors. But as I said, that's not my area of uh, expertise or uh, you know, I haven't really studied that in detail. So I'm talking about just this mid-level understanding. So wrong view is really a belief. So it's, it's not, and, and conceit and craving uh, in the way we experience it is more is there's kind of an embodied experience of it. You know, when we're identified with some of, of I, I am, or this craving, there's something there's something quite tangible in our experience that we can recognize, you know, when we're I aming, you know, or wanting or thirsting for something. Whereas with wrong view, it's not so much that felt experience of something, it's the underlying belief about something. The reason that this is so important, um, so I'm gonna talk about another, another framework for a moment, that beliefs, strongly held beliefs, are extremely difficult to dislodge so the buddha talked about three what are called three distortions of our understanding or three hallucinations so the first one is called hallucination or distortion of perception the second is distortion or hallucination of mind and the third is distortion or hallucination of view. So distortion of perception is where well, we're just misperceiving something. You know, you're outside and you see a stick on the ground, you think it's a snake, right? So, you know, we just, we're misperceiving. Well, that's fairly easily remedied. You know, we just kind of take, <laughs> take a closer look and we see, yeah, that's not a snake, it's, a, it's not a snake, it's a stick. But this happens a lot, you know, in different ways where we're just misperceiving distortions of mind are everything that happens in our minds based on the distortion of perception, you know, so we think it's a snake, and then maybe we get afraid or interested, whatever. So all of those mind states, it's a distortion of mind based on the misperception. So that, too, is not that hard to work through because once we see clearly, then our mind you know, understands it in an accurate way. But distortion of view, when people hold a strong view, and give some examples of this, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. People can be so attached to the view that you could present the clearest evidence in the world and it's not gonna make any difference. So that's why the view is very, that's very deep. So just, we see it a lot. For example, there are many, many people who just refuse to believe in evolution even though there's tremendous scientific evidence for it. You know, it's like overwhelming evidence. And you can present this evidence. But if people are holding some contrary view, the evidence is not gonna make any difference. They're not gonna give up that view. In politics, we see it a lot. You know, when I think back to the Obama years and the whole birth thing, you know, that he wasn't born in this country. All the evidence was there, you know, it was presented, but it didn't make a dent for people who held that view. So that's why I find it very interesting not not to think of, oh, this is just a belief and it's, that's not as deep a problem, you know, as uh, conceit or craving. Uh, no, it is because people hold to views very strongly. Uh, And if the view is wrong, as I said yesterday, then it's a big problem because then everything we do based on that view is just taking us into more conflict, more suffering of one kind or another because it's not in accord with the truth of things. It's not in accord with the reality. Um, So it's to understand right and wrong view as this belief that we hold and there are a few aspects more than i mentioned yesterday in terms of what constitutes wrong view or or right view Uh, so i was talking mostly about the view of self right but other examples of wrong view would be the belief that actions don't have consequences you know, and this really has to do with understanding the law of karma. You know, that, yes, it's not that we just do something and it has no, it doesn't come back to us in some way that it has no, there is no results. The Buddha is very clear and he talks about this in terms of wrong and right view, you know, understanding, yes, that actions bring results. So that's, that's another aspect. Um, I just want to tie this a little bit uh, to uh, kind of the conventional, relative, more ultimate truth, because it ties in. There is a wrong and right view. Uh, this, and this is, uh, I find this quite interesting. Uh, let's just back up a minute. For those of you who want to read about this a little bit more, there are two chapters in my book, Mindfulness which deal with different aspects of right and wrong view. So you could you could look there if you wanted. Um, but there's something that the Buddha taught which which actually struck me as being quite interesting. He said there's right view associated with taints or defilements, and right view which is not, which is tending towards liberation. So first, that first concept, I wouldn't have put those two together. Well, right view, but still with you know desire or greed. But the Buddha was pointing out that yes, when we're living in this conventional world, you know, the, the world of being, <laughs> uh, just the way, you know, our normal lives, right view is understanding what are the actions that bring about happiness? You know, you talk about, oh yeah, if you practice generosity, if you practice loving kindness, this is going to bring about different kinds of happiness for you. So it's very worldly. You know, and it could even be on this level, you know, right view associated with paints. We might be practicing generosity in order to, you know, have the abundance that comes from it, karmically. Do you understand? So there is craving involved, there is desire, but it's right view in terms of understanding the cause and effect. Yes, generosity brings abundance. Loving kindness (laughs) brings uh, good relationships. there, There is a cause and effect. So this is right view connected still in our mundane conventional relative world and then is the right view concerned with liberation so just to use that example of generosity you know if we're wanting the result of it so that's the first kind of right view but if we practice generosity understanding and and really seeing that in the moment of generosity that's a moment of non-clinging. And that's why we're, pract- we're practicing it as a vehicle for non-clinging. So that's the right view that leads to liberation. Uh, so you're just getting some idea of these, these uh, mind states, right view and wrong view, likewise of conceit and craving. There's, there's a lot of richness to them that I didn't go into yesterday, but you might explore on your own if you're interested. Um, so again, just to encapsulate, wrong view or, or right view is a belief. And this belief can be very deep within us. And it's either the belief is either in accordance with the Dharma, with the truth, or it could not be, which then it becomes wrong view. Wrong belief. Craving is that embodied, felt sense of thirsting for or wanting. You you know, we can feel it, and the same thing with conceit. Um, And so, just some of the examples I uh, gave yesterday. You know, when I was feeling down on myself for having wasted some time, that conceit had had a. Had a visceral feeling to it and, and it affected my mood. Right? So, it was, in that way, it was very tangible. It, it wasn't just a belief, right? it, was, it was something deeply felt. Um, one more little pointedness. <laughs> it's like every question can become a whole hour Dharma talk. <laughs> but what's interesting uh, to me, this path of awakening happens in stages. You know, and so within, you know, our tradition, it's said that enlightenment happens in four stages. And the first stage of awakening is called stream entry or entering the stream leading to enlightenment. So wrong view is uprooted at this first stage of awakening. Right? Because we've gone beyond, we've had that experience of the unconditioned, the nibbana, going beyond this mind-body process. And so we see completely clearly that this mind-body process is not self out of that experience. That, that, is, that is the big transformation that happens in that moment, you know, the understanding of selflessness. So wrong view is uprooted. So it doesn't arise again in the stream of our consciousness. However, craving is not uprooted until the third stage of awakening and conceit not uprooted until the fourth and final stage of awakening. So this gets interesting. So even though conceit is all around, I am, if we have seen through the wrong view of self, even though the habit pattern of the comparing mind, for example, that, that habit pattern is deep and that, that habit pattern will continue all the way to full alignment. But after we have seen into the truth of selflessness, we no longer take the "I aming" to be self. We just see, oh yeah, this is just this is just a habit pattern of the mind that is very deep. It's it's going to be with us for quite a while. But it's lo- It 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 has lost. Uh, we've cut the root of it, you know, because we no longer take it to be self. It will be dying on the vine. It may take a while, you know, we'll need to progress further along the path, but inevitably we will be freeing ourselves from it because we've cut the root of that belief. This is me. This is I. So do you understand? and craving the same way. Craving is a pattern in the mind. It, it's, it's a habit. Conceit is a habit, a craving is a habit, you know. And these habits continue even once we understand the selfless nature of it all. Um, so maybe I, I hope this has, you know, helped a little bit to distinguish between, you know, wrong and right view and uh, conceit and craving. Um, how are we doing <laughs> I can't believe it's almost 5.30. Let me just see if there's one. Uh, there were so, so many good questions. Okay, this, this is one question which uh, comes up a lot in different forms. And it's something I've talked about you know, a lot at different times. But just the question was about. However, I'm still grappling with the concept that there is no self. Yeah, not, not surprising, and so appreciate your thoughts on this. So I just want to give one example of this. This kind of this can be the <laughs> the parting words for this session. But it, you know, it's very core this okay we we do grapple with this notion you know what is what does non-self mean so we want to understand that words like self or i are a designation for something they are not an existing thing in itself So I'll give you an example. You know, if you go, or just imagine a river, you know, and somebody says, well, what's a river You say, well, it's, you know, that flowing water in a certain configuration, so you could say a certain pattern, you know, configuration that that's the river, the river, the, the word river is a designation for that flowing stream of water. It's not that the river is something apart from that. It's not that the river is a thing in and of itself to which the water belongs. It's simply a designation for that flowing water. So self is a designation for this flowing stream of mind-body phenomena. So we could use self, we could use that term and we could say, yeah, there is a self if we understand that that's what's meant by it. It's not that this flowing of mind-body elements that are in a pattern, that a recognizable pattern. You know, So I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I recognize who it is. So it's not like it's some chaotic you know, mishmash of stuff. There's a recognizable pattern to the flow of changing elements. And it's not that this mind-body process belongs to a self. Self the word self or Joseph or I, it's just a word designating this flow of changing phenomena. Right? So to say there's no self doesn't mean that. Nothing changes. It's still the same flow of mental, physical phenomena. It's not just, oh, no self, and suddenly we disappear in a puff of smoke. Everything remains exactly the same, except that we're seeing it clearly, and we're not confusing the designation with the actual reality of the experience, whether it's of the flowing water of the river or the flowing movement of the mind-body process that is the reality of what's happening regardless of how it's called (laughs) right so we don't want to confuse just the terminology of what's a designation for being a thing in itself that's what no self means right so we don't lose anything it's not in in seeing no self and understanding that Everything is just as it always was, but we're seeing it more clearly. We're not adding this wrong view that, oh, this mind-body process belongs to me, right? Uh, So I hope you understand that it may be this whole notion of understanding selflessness may be easier than you think. if, If you understand actually what selflessness means, because we can have all kinds of ideas, you know, we conjure up different things about what no self means and then we sometimes panic about it. So I hope this was clear, you know, that that term self or Joseph, it's just a designation. It's not something in and of itself. And when we see that, so then our whole practice is coming into harmony with understanding the laws governing the process of the unfolding. And this is what the Buddha pointed out. He said, in this unfolding process, some elements, some qualities lead to more suffering. Some qualities lead to greater happiness and peace. So he just pointed all this out. He said, okay, what would you like? Do you want more suffering? <laughs> or would you like or Would you like peace? <laughs> uh, okay, when well, we pose it in that way, it seems fairly obvious. Somebody made this comment. I'm trying to remember. It was It was very expressed very beautifully, but um, it was some. This is not exact, but it will capture the essence of it people shrink from suffering, but love its causes. You know, and we find ourselves in that situation and none of us want to suffer. And yet we keep doing things out of ignorance that cause suffering. You know, and so this is the great gift of the Buddhist teachings. You know, he just pointed this out because he saw with such profound clarity You know, what leads to what? And in seeing that and learning about that, so then there can be the cultivation of the wholesome qualities and the slow abandoning of the unwholesome ones. Uh, And all of this can be done without any notion of a reified self. It's just understanding the laws governing the unfolding process. So, uh, there's a lot, and there were many more really good questions, uh, but we covered, you know, as many as possible in this session. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.